We've now laid out the fundamental shape of decentralized government as it ought to be, or very close anyway. The county should be fundamental, and the people should have to deal with no government official other than their county officials, with perhaps some limited exceptions for national elections, state elections, and things like that. Now, this is nowhere more true than with that most hated of all ancient evils, taxation. What we've been trying to demonstrate, based on biblical and historical uh, Christian ideas, as well as their implementation throughout Western history, is the power that true federalism has for restoring and protecting freedom. In theory, in a truly federal system, the national government should only govern states, state government should only govern counties, county government should only govern the people. And of course, where there are smaller units, if you have townships or towns or cities, et cetera, below the county level, then the principle of federalism should extend that much further. In regard to taxation, true federalism means the national government should have no power to tax individuals. The only agency, if any, that should have any authority to tax individuals is the smallest, most local, nearest jurisdiction to that individual. No jurisdiction above that should be able to touch the individual directly unless through that individual's consent, which of course wouldn't be taxation. Instead, if higher governments desire to raise revenue through taxation, they should be forced to deal with the next level of government below them. In other words, the federal government should only be able to tax states. State governments should only be able to tax counties. Counties should only be able to tax uh, citizens. Uh, and I should say only counties should be able to tax citizens or municipalities wherever that applies. Now, none of this, however, is to justify taxation in general. Yeah, ideally, there should be none. And most public services would be much more like private services, if not in fact private services. Even police and fire can essentially act like insurance services or at least be paid for like uh, insurance services uh, with fees, uh, user fees and things like that uh, privately. Public water and sewer services are often already paid in this way. Uh, so are some ambulance and EMT services, at least in part in some places. Okay? There's no reason that police and fire even could not be paid this way as well. Even the court system could be improved through greater proliferation and even dominance of private courts and private arbitration. We'll get to that later. There's very little reason that most currently public services should require taxation in order to exist and function effectively. And we can discuss that, as I said, a little bit later. But if taxes must exist, they should be as decentralized as possible. Only the most local municipality should have power to tax the individual. Counties must do the duty of protecting their people from the reach of state taxes, and they should act in concert, represented at the state level as counties, to create a government and a tax barrier between individuals and the state. And then if the state absolutely needs revenues, it must work with those counties in concert in order to arrive at the, the level they require. Thus, county representatives will be negotiating how much of their budgets they shall agree to provide to the states for its services. To the degree that local citizens have control in their counties and they're adequately represented in the state assembly, you can be sure that they won't want to give much of their county's budget at all over to the states. And in fact, they will want to give nothing beyond a bare necessity. 
This will mean strictly limited state power. Now, the same delicate negotiating balance should also occur between the national government and the states represented in concert, which of course is an issue that was destroyed by the 17th Amendment, and we'll talk in a later talk about why that should be repealed. States, if they're being squeezed by uh, local interests and bargaining power of their counties, will naturally and rightly wish to guard their revenue, uh, which is scarce, for themselves against the national government. And this will create strong pressure against the uh, national government, and it will also limit the power of the state government to a great degree. Okay. Again, preferably only to a bare necessity. Constitutionally speaking, the states have an added bargaining chip, and that is that the feds are allowed and the states are forbidden to collect duties on exports and imports, and for all states that, are, that have either airports or seaports have to uh, deal with that, thing, that uh, reality. Um, so the government, national government already has a very unique source, an exclusive source of revenue, and it should not need much, if any, taxation upon the member states. And states can point to that in negotiation as one more reason to deny further taxation upon their treasuries by the, Fed, uh, by the feds. What type of tax is best? There is no biblical law regarding any taxation for civil government. And that much in itself leads me to believe that there should be none. Nevertheless, we are given ecclesiastical precedents uh, of the tithes as a model for which type of taxation is the best in the event that a sinful society demands one. Now there were only two types of taxation specified by biblical law. Number one was a tithe on the increase of produce. The second was a flat head tax. Uh, but the particular flat tax, however specified in Exodus chapter 30 verses 11 through 16, was explicitly priestly in nature and was only pay paid by males over 20 years old uh, who were being numbered in the army. And that is as they were being numbered in the army. It was specifically called ransom money and it was to protect the lives of God's holy soldiers as they went off into battle. It was specifically an atonement for their possible death, and it was only collected when the army was raised, as I said, for a battle. And so it was not meant to be a pattern for a general stream of revenue for the government. And it should thus not be looked upon as a good measure for civil revenue either. The other type seems a little more suited to the purpose of a general stream of revenue, and this was the general tithe, which was collected on the increase of produce. The tithe was, of course, as its name means, 10%, uh, and it was payable after the harvest came in uh, on the net increase of harvest, and it was taken to a central location during an appropriate semi-annual festival. It could be paid in the form of the produce itself, or the produce could be turned into money and then paid in a monetary form depending on the taxpayer's convenience. And you can read those laws in Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 33, and Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and forward. In a modern monetary economy, we would simply call this an income tax. In Deuteronomy, the 10% was God's requirement for the ecclesiastical institution, as I said, not the civil state. And these funds were to be used specifically for feasting of the very people who brought them, 
and making merry as well as for the taking care of widows and the fatherless and the maintenance of the priesthood and the Levitical uh, uh, needs as well. Thus, welfare was an ecclesiastical function as well. Uh, the Bible gives no such 10% requirement for the civil government. It is in fact, uh, it, it in fact gives no requirement at all for the civil government. And it goes so far as when Samuel warns the Israelites against the adoption of a king like other nations in 1 Samuel 8, he spells out the type of tyranny that would follow and that tithe for the civil state is is in his list. Among the list of confiscations and enslavements and everything else that would come, Samuel warns them that such a king will, quote, take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. 1 Samuel 8, 15 through 17. In other words, when the civil government assumed the right to a 10% income tax, it was absolute, unimaginable, tyranny equivalent to slavery. Those were Samuel's words. Because when the civil ruler assumes the right to extract as much as God himself demands in the church, then the civil government is exalting itself to the level of God. And the civil ruler is then essentially saying that his work is at least as important, if not more important, than the work of God himself. And so while there is no explicit number in Scripture for civil taxation... Samuel certainly indicates that a 10% uh, income tax has far exceeded the maximum for a free society. And that is absolutely clear. And at this point, you no longer call it taxation, you call it slavery to the state. Hardly any Western nation on earth today has a total tax burden below 30%. A couple are slightly below, the U.S. is slightly below, but there are several that are over 40, some approaching 50. And that means that nearly every Western nation today needs to slash its tax burden by at least 66% in order to return to Samuel's standard of slavery and tyranny. Now, one problem with allowing an income tax is the need for accurately reporting income. And this is not an issue with the ecclesiastical tithe because God did not allow the legal enforcement of the ecclesiastical tithe. And so the church must depend on the free giving and the honesty of her members. The state, however, will use, by definition, legal coercion to extract its duties. Thus, if taxation is based on a percentage of income, it will require reporting of income, or something of that nature to make sure it's getting its demanded percentage accurately. Now to eliminate eliminate this requirement, uh, several measures could be taken, all of them undesirable to someone. First, the state could rely, as the church does, on honesty and non-reporting. But in this case, revenues would certainly plummet, just as the church, by the way, nowhere sees the 10% which it is due today. Uh, Voluntary reporting or only payer reporting would have similar results. Fraud would be rampant. The revenues would plummet. The civil government could require an accurate income statement as a qualification to vote, and this has been thought of in the past, but that disenfranchises many people, especially those who are generally honest and upstanding, 
but also who place a high value on personal privacy and thus don't report. And it's also unconstitutional at this point. There seems to be no good way around this problem if an income tax is desired. Now a property tax from a biblical perspective is not only pro problematic, it's absolutely not permitted. It should in fact be considered unbiblical. Only God has absolute ownership of property and he has delegated his uh, ownership to individuals and he gave us a commandment against property theft in all forms and that it can be seen all through the Old Testament in Exodus, Deuteronomy and Proverbs, Leviticus, all kinds of places. God did not give the civil state any claim of ownership in individual's land. It has none. And for it to claim such uh, a right is to defy God. And what is a property tax except a claim of partial ownership or tenure in the land? It's a system of feudal tenure in which the state claims a percentage of the value of your property yearly for the sole privilege of you living on it and claiming to own it within their particular jurisdiction. And while this type of tax has deep historical roots, it's also deeply unbiblical. And as I said before, this tax has historically been collected and spent at the county level, and thus it demonstrates for us how, how historically the county was the fundamental unit of government authority in this country. It is nevertheless a, an unbiblical form of taxation and should be replaced with a better form in every place in which it is to be practiced. A sales tax seems to be the least intrusive on the surface of it. It's enacted, of course, not on ownership or on income, but only on exchange. And thus it is extracted piecemeal, and some would even say voluntarily. Uh, this means there's never a large tax surprise at the end of the year. And as a tax on voluntary purchases, it gives people an incentive to save as much as their money as possible if they wish to avoid paying taxes. One problem, however, is that the extent is that to the extent we have to buy certain basic necessities, a sales tax places a great, greater necess, uh, I should say greater necessary burden on lower classes than on upper classes, and that argument is true. Of course, it uh, assumes that wealthy people will will indeed spend more and pay more on larger items in sales tax, but they're not required to by the basic necessities of life. So if it is a valid consideration that there is a basic set of human needs that most people must purchase out of necessity, then a sales tax does indeed hit the poor people harder because they have to buy those same needs like everyone else, but they have less money at their expenditure to do so. For this reason, many states and municipalities uh, do not assess sales tax on basic foodstuffs and some other groceries. Secondly, while it seems fairly unobtrusive from the shopper's perspective, the sales tax requires the businesses to keep detailed records of all sales, again, to submit accurate reports along with the collective sales tax payments. And this, uh, aside from being accurate reporting, is additional bookkeeping and reporting. It creates the same problem for businesses that an income tax creates for individuals. It is also an additional and unnecessary expense added to the cost of doing business. So there seems to be no good form of taxation compatible with preserving the privacy of person, of income, and of property. Taxation seems to be 
an inherent compromise of those things, life, liberty, and property, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is why I believe the Bible prescribed no method for civil taxation, because taxation for the support of civil government is inherently at odds with the type of freedom that God desires us to attain. The very idea of empowering the coercive arm of society to fund itself by means of its own coercive arm seems at best a recipe for corruption, if not enslavement, as Samuel said. It's fundamental folly to put the power of the purse and the power of the sword in the same hands. And if that's true, then our means of funding the administration of justice in society needs to be radically rethought. Taxation will always require some degree of servitude. And to the extent that it does, and it will vary from time to time and from place to place, it means that we are not free people. We're not a free society. To the extent that we must tolerate taxation as Christians, as our inspired writers have told us in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 13, etc., it is an admission that sin still has a grip on society, both among the people and the officials. And we have to strive to reach a society in which the protections of person and property and are ensured enough through voluntary means. And I believe the silence of the Bible on the method and the form of civil taxation was deliberate because no method, no method could be prescribed in accordance with God's design for society, even in a sinful world. No method could be designed which would not itself involve some amount of sin. What principles then can we glean from Scripture in order best to rein in taxation? First, it should be based on a fixed percentage. The tithe was 10% for everyone. A graduated percentage is unbiblical, and thus it is unjust. The rich should not pay a greater percentage than the poor, as they are forced to do now. Second, the percentage, the fixed percentage, should be nowhere near as much as 10%. 10% should be an indicator to everyone in society that we're squarely in the midst of a tyranny. Social repentance and a return to individual responsibility are what is in order at that point. Third, the only biblical model for a method of taxation is on income. Other forms of taxation either have no biblical precedent at all, or they run against biblical principles of property. Based on these three criteria and what else we have said above, if we're to sever the evil of taxation for civil government, it should take only the following form. Number one, local governments and local governments only should tax individuals. Number two, it should only be a tax on net income. Number three, it should be well under 10%. Number four, it should only be for the bare necessities of the administration of justice. And the same principle should apply at each level in the federal system. The taxes collected by counties should be viewed as income to the county and taxed well under 10% by the states. The fullness of revenue collected in that way from all the counties by the state should be considered the state's income. The federal government should then be able, if it wishes, to tax the income of the states for its services, but only well under 10%. And this system, this federal system, means the following things. Again, number one, no individual would ever suffer greater taxation than what occurred at their local county level. And number two, at least 90% of your tax dollars would stay in your local community. 
only a maximum of 9% could stay at the state level and only a maximum of 1% could get to the national level. For example, I threw a bunch of numbers out, let's have an example. Average household income in the U.S. is about 45 grand annually. In today's system of taxation, a couple filing jointly will pay roughly 13% in federal income tax, 25% if they're not married, by the way. And in, for example, my state of Georgia, 6% in state income tax. They will also have to pay their half of Social Security and Medicare. The employer pays the other half ostensibly, but it's probably calculated out of their salary ahead of time. And that's 6.2% for Social Security, 1.45% for Medicare. Now, if the earner is self-employed, he or she is liable to both halves of the tax, and thus they have to pay 12.4% and 2.9% respectively. When the order of taxes and all the brackets are considered, uh, the tax burden, in this case, 45 grand a year, average family, is 22.13%. And that doesn't include sales taxes we pay. It doesn't pay the taxes on imported items that are rolled in. It doesn't uh, count increased prices due to government regulations, the hidden tax of inflation, which is out of control, um, so-called sin taxes that are placed on tobacco and alcohol, possibly luxury taxes. Okay, it doesn't count any of that. Plus, an average American pays roughly 1% to 2% of assessed property value every year in local property taxes. And with the average home price in, the, in America being around $175,000, uh, uh, even a low 1% property tax rate would mean an additional $1,750 a year, and that's a 3.88% tax against their yearly income. So in, including this very conservative property tax number only raises our former total to 26%. That represents a loss of $11,700 in income annually to the average couple out of their 45 grand. Now consider in contrast to this system, my proposed biblical federal model, okay? Let's assume the worst case scenario below 10%, we'll say 9%, uh, almost to that 10% tyranny threshold at each level of government. Okay, in my case, the same household making $45,000 a year would surrender 9% of its earnings only to the local government. That's $4,050. He would pay nothing else in taxes. The state would then extract 9% from the county level, which from that one portion of the county's income would be $364.50, and the feds would get 9% of the state revenue, which would, from this one example, be only about $33 from that one person's contribution. Okay. In the current scenario, people are taxed directly by every level of government, and the money is often spent in places they don't agree with, on things they don't agree with, in ways they don't agree with, for purposes that often conflict with their personal values, in ways in which they're not truly represented as, as taxed citizens. In a free society, people are accountable to only one agency, if, if that one, only at the local level where they can be most accurately represented, or they can move, by the way and their money is spent mostly in that particular public square. And even in the worst case scenario, it costs them way less than half of what the current 
scheme of taxation in this country does. So let that sink in. Decentralization and low taxes are not only good theory, they're more originally American too. Okay, it's closer to the way America used to be. In colonial days, before the Constitution, there was no taxation from a central national government. When the uh, central government, which was Britain, attempted to start imposing centralized taxation, as we all know the story, it set in motion a series of tax revolts that culminated in the Declaration of Independence, a document, by the way, uh, which condemned King George III and Parliament, among many other the grievement, uh, grievances, for this, quote, for imposing taxes on us without our consent. Okay. Now, this is a very general truth, however. This is not to say that the colonies were a tax haven, although the, they were much generally lower than anywhere else throughout the British Empire at the time. Uh, nevertheless, there were very many taxes of various types. Uh, they were implemented variously in every colony through, throughout the 13 colonies from the, uh, from the period of colonization all the way up to the Declaration of Independence. There were lots of taxes. There were poll taxes, land taxes, mass property taxes, livestock taxes, specific taxes on horses and cattle, taxes on stocks, taxes on cash investments, <laughs> house taxes, slave taxes, carriage taxes, the list goes on and on and on. And only one colony, North Carolina, implemented as few as three of these ten types uh, during this time. Most had between four and six. So the colonies were not shy about implementing taxes. Although they were various in type, they were, however, very gen generally low. Uh, in Virginia, for example, there was a poll tax as early as 1619. The tax was one pound of tobacco per male person over 16 years old. Okay, that was about one day's wages for a common laborer at the time. Compare that, if you will, to the 26% we pay today, which means the government gets almost three months' worth of the average family's wages compared to a day's wages. Okay, in the midst of a financial strain, Virginia took on a lot of debt. It, uh, over a period of a few years, it had raised its tax to 10 pounds of tobacco. By 1644, it was as high as 18 pounds of tobacco per male head. And, uh, but even at that extreme rate, it was only about 7% of yearly income for a common laborer, which was the lower class. It would have been much less for a professional of any sort, certainly for a lawyer or anyone else like that. For a schoolmaster, uh, for example, in 1651, had about, made about 30 pounds per year. Sterling, 18 pounds of tobacco would have equaled only about 4.5% of their income. Now again, this is only one of the various taxes to which people at different times were liable. But these rarely overlapped over the different times, and when they did, they still didn't amount to anywhere the collective burden we have today. Overall, the burden to which any one person at any given time was subjected was very low, especially, as I said, by today's standards. It was also uh, low in comparison, by the way, to the tax burdens of the rest of the British Empire at the time. So this is why uh, King George III chose the American colonies as the place to start raising taxes to begin with because uh, they looked around everywhere and they saw here's, here's somewhere we can raise taxes and of course they were wrong. Uh, when they tried to impose a tax from the central government, 
in addition to the colonial government's taxes, the colonists resisted and they ultimately revolted. The, the great story of the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party was thrown as a result of Britain's Townsend Acts of 1767 and the Tea Act of 1773, which had levied a tax on several imports, including tea, and created this government-enforced monopoly on the sales of tea in the colonies. The tax on tea was uncomfortable, but, but not exorbitant, especially by today's standards. It was an 8.33% excise tax, equivalent to kind of a sales tax. Uh, it was three pence per pound on tea that was selling at three shillings, which is 36 pounds, so it was one twelfth, 8.33%. 8, 8 uh, now consider this was only on one single product, one product that was used by mostly upper and upper middle classes, although really everyone to a lesser degree. It was not a universal sales tax. It was not a universal import. Today, several states allow sales taxes on most goods at rates higher than 8.33% on only uh, which the colonies only had for tea and for which our ancestors rebelled and shed their blood. Meanwhile, the total per capita tax burden in the colonies was significantly less, only 2 to 4% of what was being levied in Britain itself. And the colonists still said, we would rather fight and die than be taxed in that manner. Now, consider, of course, the wisdom of the British bureaucrats imposing taxes on the most outspoken and able people of the colonies, which was the Stamp Act in 1765, levied a tax on all printed materials, which thereby made every uh, minister, lawyer, publisher, and politician in the hemisphere enraged, uh, which is a great way to start a revolt. And then the Townsend Acts hit their tea, a commodity which was indulged in by most of the wives of those classes, and now you've got disgruntled lawyers with the added aggravation of their wives nagging all, all the time. Uh, so to that, add the insult of intelligence to the original insult. The British imposed a monopoly on the Tea Act, uh, on the Tea with the Tea Act, I should say. And so the British succeeded in enraging the classes of people most self-interested and most able to rouse the masses against them. That was the preachers, the lawyers, and their wives. And of course, uh, that would be about as smart today as levying a tax on lobbyists and liquor and prostitution in Washington, D.C., which are probably the most prominent things indulged in there. You would see an immediate tax revolt from the vast majority of people there before you could say Washington Monument. Well, enough has been said on this issue uh, so far to demonstrate the point. A biblical view of taxation is greatly decentralized, based only on a fixed percentage, and only assessed on an increase in income. And even this is not fully biblical in the sense of God's ideal of only voluntary services. And taxation can only be described as a very questionable, I'm not even going to say necessary, evil. Taxation to pay for civil government should always be well less than 10% of net income uh, annually, and it should go only to local government. Higher levels have to wrangle and negotiate with the more fundamental local units for their services. Beyond this is to prescribe a tyranny, which is to say we live in a tyranny now. I say it's time for another Tea Party. And I'm not talking about just demonstrations. I'm talking about throwing off the taxes, asserting fundamental rights, and local sovereignty. In the next talk, we'll talk about 
how these original freedoms were lost, and then we'll talk about really getting to the things we can do to reassert local control. Thank you.